I was reading about Armistice Day, and um, World War I officially ended November 11th at 11 a.m., 1918, and the first Armistice Day was celebrated November 11th, um, 1919. Some interesting things happened on the day the armistice was signed in 1918. The Allies and the German forces agreed at 5.10 a.m. that they would stop battle at 11 a.m. Officially, the war would be over. Now, communication wasn't uh, quite as fast as it is today, back in 1918. And it took some time for the information to get out there. But by 6 a.m., the most important commanders on the Western Front of the Allied forces knew that uh, the, the war would end at 11 a.m. The Germans knew that as well. However, they were under orders previously, and they were there to do battle, not to stop before 11 a.m. And uh, the events that happened on that day from 6 a.m. to 11 a.m., 3,200 people died when their commanding officers basically knew that the war would be over at 11. Was that a tragedy? 3,200 lost their lives on that day. I still remember where I was on September 11, 2001. I was sitting in a local coffee shop in Stoughton where we served in our former ministry and uh, was sitting with a staff member and there was a TV right over his uh, shoulder and uh, as it was a, uh, a talk show, morning talk show going on, and all of a sudden the, sh- the program was interrupted, and uh, nobody was watching TV, and the program was interrupted, and then there was the uh, South Tower with smoke billing, billowing out. And as the program is interrupted, apparently some kind of plane had hit the tower. And, and as you know the story, um, the whole day got worse. And who knew that within two hours that both towers would um, have come down. And I think there was something like uh, 2,973 people would lose their life on September 11th. Uh, That was unbelievable. If you remember, I was just stunned. We were in shock. And we all thought about the value of human life. We hugged our kids more. We hugged our spouses more. At least I did. And we prayed more. A lot of people went back to church. It's had a huge impact on our nation. You know, that's, those two are just examples of catastrophic disasters um, that uh, have, have happened. Uh, one back in the 20th century, one here in my lifetime. Uh, in 2004, the day after Christmas, some of you will remember that a tsunami in the Indian Ocean had a huge impact. And there were over 282,000 people who lost their lives in 11 different countries. Closer to home, in 2005, Hurricane Katrina took 1,836 lives in our Gulf Coast region. 
Uh, and, you know, we could just start listing the tragic events in our lifetime. Hurricanes, earthquakes, tornadoes, wildfires, and uh, terrorist attacks. Crazy, crazy things have happened in our lifetime. And it, it gets uh, intensified because we have instant communication 24-7. We know from our TV, from our phones, from our laptops, we have instant communication about the news. We have a lot of questions that we'd like to ask God. Someday, I hope, I get to ask God some of the why questions that I have. Um, we have a lot of why questions. People have a lot of why questions. Why does God allow things like this to happen? If he is a good God, if he is a loving God, why does he let bad things happen to people? Our questions are very different than people had in the first century. Our assumptions about God are very different. The assumptions that people had about God in the first century were not always accurate. And the assumptions that we have about God are not always accurate either. Um, in Luke chapter 13, Jesus deals with catastrophic disaster. But I must warn you, he doesn't answer many of our questions. So what does he say? And uh, I'm going to encourage you to turn to Luke chapter 13. Uh, today we're going to look at verses 1 through 9. I want to start by reading verses 1 through 5, Luke chapter 13. And uh, here's the passage, verse 1. Now there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Jesus answered, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will perish. Or those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. And so we'll start with uh, verses 1 through 5. The tragedy caused by catastrophic disaster is indiscriminate. Bad things can happen to anyone. That's what we see in these verses. Bad things can happen to anyone. They are indiscriminate. In verses 1 through 3, we see that some tragedies are caused by evil. This is the case of the World Trade Center. Tragic events on 9-1-1 because of evil, because of terrorism. This would be the case of three girl scouts and their mother tragically killed a week ago Saturday. The situation we have in verse 1. Now there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. So someone in the crowd had come to Jesus and they wanted to have Jesus connect with a recent event in Jerusalem. And uh, on this occasion... Um, he, he wants Jesus to weigh in on this. Uh, Jesus, what do you think? Tell us about this. Give us your perspective. Now, 
We don't see a question here. We don't know all that was said, but we know that Jesus is going to come right back with his question. Galileans, as you know, were Jewish people who lived in northern Israel. And Jerusalem is where the temple is, and it's in southern Israel. We could probably see this on a map, and then we could say today we had a map. So remember, uh, see that little where Capernaum is? There's a little body of water. That would be the Sea of Galilee. Nazareth is where Jesus grew up. And then down uh, toward the south, you'll see a little red place for Jerusalem. That's where the temple is. So a group from the north came to the south, and their intention was to worship. Um, The question comes in verse 2, and it's the question is from Jesus. Do you think these Galileans were worse sinners than all the Galileans because they suffered in this way? Apparently, Jesus knows what they're getting at. Why did they bring this up? What are they looking for? And um, so he is going to ask this a question. Do you think these people were, were sinners? He understands there's an underlying assumption to how they view life. And we have to remember this is Israel in the first century. They are Jewish religious people. Um, population has a lot of information about God. They have a lot of information about what the Old Testament teaches. And these people are following Jesus. This is a crowd that's interested in religious things. Not necessarily everybody was, but generally that was uh, the crowd that followed Jesus. Um, The underlying assumption is in the first century is that people get what they deserve. And God visits, visits judgment on people, and bad things happen to bad people. It didn't fit for them that bad things happened to good people. And they had this assumption. They weren't worried about why God allowed this to happen. They had a different assumption. Um. And so Jesus asked this question, do you think these Galileans were worse than the other Galileans? And he gives the answer in uh, verse 3. The answer is, I tell you, no. No distinction here. It's not about their sin. All, all have sinned. And uh, when you think about these, the Galileans, they have gone to Jerusalem to worship. They uh, apparently are in the temple. And they are slaughtered by um, soldiers, likely, from Pilate. And he was known to be very cruel. And so these people die in the temple, and their blood, so, you know, they're slaughtered, and their blood is actually mixed with their worship. uh, Animals have been sacrificed, and now they're mixing the blood. And that would be like a, a terrible sacrilege in the first century. In the temple. And it's sort of like Pilate's uh, sense of humor and his ability to produce fear and to control people. And uh, so Jesus is saying, you know, this is truly an example of evil and good people dying because of 
the actions of evil men. And then he gives a warning in verse 3, and it might surprise us. Unless you repent, you too will perish. Does that sound harsh to you? Is that what you would want Jesus to say? Would you want Jesus to give a different answer? Um, Let me just remind you of Luke chapter 12, verse 56. Here's part of the audience. Verse 56, hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and the sky. How is it that you don't know how to interpret this present time? And if you remember when we talked about that, here is Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the promised one, the Christ. Here he is, present. Here he is announcing the kingdom of God is at hand. Here he is proclaiming the good news. This is the one that everybody has been waiting for. This is the one that the Old Testament scriptures have looked forward to, the coming of this day, that the great king would would be here. And Jesus is saying, I'm here. And you, you don't understand the significance of this time. And so his audience, they have this religious, strong religious background, Jewish, and they're looking that we're good people, we do good things, we keep the law kind of, and it's important to us, and God's going to take care of us. And Jesus is saying, I'm not sure you get it, because if you don't repent, you too will perish. There is a day coming when you, too, can perish. Now, there's going to be an application here, I think, that's specifically for the people in this audience that relates to prophecies from the Old Testament. There's going to be an application for us as well. And then Jesus uh, continues. Some uh, tragedies are caused by incompetence or nature. And so the tsunami in the Indian Ocean in 2004, tragedy of nature. You know, we looked at Romans 8, how the creation just longs for the coming of the day when Jesus comes and is going to bring, settle uh, issues with justice and sin, and he's going to bring uh, order back to creation, and he's going to restore creation. And creation is just in chaos until uh, that time comes. And it seems like as we get closer and closer to Jesus' return, there's going to be more earthquakes and more hurricanes and more tsunamis. And uh, in Matthew 24, it suggests that it's These are just going to get more intense before uh, Jesus comes. So the the situation, or those who who died when the Tower of Siloam fell on them. Tower of Siloam was located or near the south wall of the city of Jerusalem. And apparently, uh, somewhat in Jesus' time, that tower collapsed, and 18 people died. We don't know the events around it. We don't know what caused it. Was it nature? Something happened in the earth strata that nobody knew? 
Did, did they not know how to design a building or was there incompetence? We don't know. But it collapsed and 18 people are dead. And I just want to stop a minute and just say, if Jesus would have been there when those people were um, killed by Pilate's men, Jesus would have had great compassion. I think Jesus would have grieved with those families. He would have wept. He would have come alongside. He would have expressed his love. But Jesus is not, wasn't there, and Jesus is talking to an audience. And it's about Jesus is looking at this from an eternal perspective. There's something more important than this life. And he wants his audience to make sure that they understand that. The same would be true about the, those families of the 18 who died when the Tower of Siloam collapsed. Or when the bridge over I-35 collapsed in Minneapolis and 13 died in 2007. If Jesus would have been there in person, he would have grieved with those families. He would have shown his love and concern. But he wasn't there. And he wants his audience and he wants us to see there is an eternal perspective. And so uh, he raises a question just like he did earlier. Do you think these were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? And he gives the same answer. I tell you, no. It wasn't about their sin being greater than anybody else's sin because we are all sinners. And then he gives the very same warning, but unless you repent, you too will perish. The first application is to Jesus' audience. In the Old Testament, God foretold many things that would happen in Israel. Jesus knew that time was short for his audience. Jesus knew that he would soon be crucified and he wouldn't be there present like he is right now on this day. And yes, there are going to be his disciples that will have an opportunity to share with these people, but he knew that time was getting short and that things were going to be changing quickly. Jesus also knew that there was a time coming where God's patience with this nation would run out. And there are many passages in the Old Testament that explain how God would deal with his disobedient people. And in, um, in 70 AD, if you know history, the Romans came in and destroyed the nation and they literally destroyed Israel, killing thousands and thousands of people and tearing down the walls and tearing down the temple. Jesus knew there was a physical judgment coming. He's most concerned about a final judgment, not a physical judgment. But time is short for his audience. The danger is that some of those people in his audience there on that day would perish in 70 AD and they would not know Jesus. And they 
would experience an eternal destruction. They would perish without God forever. Verses 6 through 9. The tragedy caused by catastrophic disaster pictures judgment to come. Why? Because of Jesus' warning. He says, unless you repent, you too will perish. There is an application for us as well. I'm going to get to that. Let's go back to the context of this Luke chapter 13, this con- uh, context of catastrophic disaster and this warning that if we don't repent, if his audience doesn't repent, we too could perish. Luke chapter 12, verses 2 through 5. Luke chapter 12. We do not have Luke chapter 12. The context. There we go. There is nothing Uh, This is Jesus, this is what we saw a few weeks back. There is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What you have said in the dark will be heard in the daylight. What you have whispered in the ear in the inner rooms will be proclaimed from the roofs. I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. Now, we're uncomfortable with this. Jesus is saying there's something greater here than your physical body. There's something more important than physical suffering. This is about an eternal perspective that Jesus brings to our attention. And that's what's after this life. But I, show you, I, but I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who after your body has been killed, has the authority to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you to fear him, to respect him, to honor him, to pay attention when he speaks. Luke chapter 12, verse 49. Remember this? This was a couple of weeks ago. I've come to bring fire on earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. We talked about side B of Jesus. You know, there's a side A where we want Jesus to love us and to care for us and to give us peace and to forgive our sins and to provide for us. But there's another side that's very biblical, and there's this side where there is something coming. There is going to be a judgment on earth. That's the context of these words in Luke 13. Now we go on to a parable in verses 6 through 9. If you remember Hebrews, before we look at that, remember Hebrews 9.27. It says, just as man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment. You can pretty much count that we're all going to die. Dying is not the most important thing or the worst thing. Yes, when someone dies that we know and love, it's, it causes great pain. Jesus would never take anything away from that. But if we focus just on this life, we're missing something really big. Parable verses 6 through 9. The situation, verse 6. Then he told this parable. So remember that a parable is an earthly story and it has a spiritual reality that Jesus wants to convey. He says, A man had a fig tree growing in his vineyard and he went to look for fruit on it, but it didn't find any. 
So here we have this story. By the way, the story of this fig tree calls to mind the Old Testament. In Micah chapter 7, verse 1, it speaks of God going to his vineyard and looking for fruit, and there is none. And God wants to be done with this. The fig tree, by the way, is one of the symbols in the Old Testament used for the nation Israel. It's, it's very clear in Isaiah chapter 5 that this it would be, Jesus would be talking about Israel here. If you go back and read Isaiah chapter 5. Um, fig trees are designed to produce figs. And this is an earthly story. And so you, uh, a landowner might have his vine dresser or gardener plant trees. And it might be expected to take three years to have any fruit, any production. And so the owner, the vine dresser, are very patient and waiting for this. But the owner has gone to his vineyard and he has searched for fruit, but there, he didn't find any. And so there is an accounting in verse 7. He, so he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, For three years now I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree and I haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should we use up the soil? And so the owner of this property has come to his end and he has given a limit here and now he is done and he's ready to cut this tree down. And it's all about whether the fig tree is productive, whether the fig tree is fruit bearing. Verses 8 and 9, here's the request. It's from the uh, vine dresser. Sir, the man replied, Leave it alone for one more year, and I'll dig around it and fertilize it. If it bears, if it bears fruit next year, fine. If, then, uh, if not, cut it down. And so in this story, uh, there's another investment of time. There is more patience on the part of the owner. And there is more uh, focus on the tree. And there's more cultivation and there's fertilization to help it grow, to bring it back. And the point of this parable is, is that God is looking for spiritual fruit. God was looking for spiritual fruit from his nation, from his promised uh, uh, nation, from, from his, the people that he chose, his chosen people, where he selected out Abraham and he and he gave promises all the way along, and he promised them the Messiah, and he gave them the law, and he gave them their land. And he gave these promises uh, to the very end. And there is a point where he loses patience with this fig tree. And God is looking for fruitfulness from us as well. In fact, the first sign of conversion to faith in Christ is fruitfulness. It's change in character, love and peace and patience and gentleness and goodness, faithfulness and self-control. It's the ability, to, the desire to share the gospel. It's, a, it's the, get, the desire to know God and the desire to want to please God. God is looking for fruitfulness. The significance of this uh, parable 
Matthew 24, verses 42 through 44. And this goes back, this is actually uh, what we saw already in the Gospel of Luke, but this is where it's recorded in Matthew. And it's about the, the God's desire for his people to live in readiness, to be prepared. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know what day your Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known what time of night the thief was coming, next slide, he would have kept watch and he would have not let his house be broken into. So you, you also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. There is a judgment coming and we don't know when it is. And there is a time that we'll all appear before God and we don't know when it is. As a believer, you're going to appear before God at the judgment seat of Christ, and you, that might happen on the day of your death, and I don't know when that's going to happen. I don't know the day of my death. And God wants me to live in a way that I'll be ready. Uh, Ma- Matthew 13 is another passage. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes and all who do evil. They will throw them into a blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth and the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Whoever has ears, let them hear. Not not everybody wanted to hear it. Some people want to hear it. Some people get it. Some people don't. Jesus is coming and he wants us to be ready. Luke chapter 13, this passage we've looked at this morning is a hard passage for us. In a way that seems like Jesus is unloving, he doesn't care. And um, I'd like to remind us of a few things kind of around this passage. Uh, Reminder, first of all, number one, we must be careful not to create God in our image because we come to this passage with our culture and our assumptions and our knowledge. And we need to be reminded that God has revealed himself in Scripture and he has never changed. And uh, our job is to know him by understanding what he's communicated in Scripture. And yes, we know him by our relationship with him and our communication with him and how he relates to us and how he leads us, and how he guides us. But you know what? He has already told us about him. And he's already um, explained, given us the information on how he does things. And you know what? Bad things have happened to good people since the beginning. Um. And sometimes Christians just ignore what God has said in his word. Or they don't like it, so they don't want it a part of their view. They conclude that a loving God should not allow these bad things to happen. And that is not the testimony of Scripture, because sometimes they do. second thing I'd like to remind us of is that all of us deserve judgment for our sin. That apart from Jesus Christ, there is no forgiveness, there is no grace, there is no gift of salvation apart from Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, it's a verse that, uh, two verses that we love. 
For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. It's a pretty hard one to understand for some people, and for some of us, we just cling to it, and we're so grateful. It is by grace. I don't deserve my relationship with God. I do not deserve eternal salvation. I do not deserve forgiveness of sins. I do not deserve to be a child of God or a citizen of heaven. I am a sinner, and I have a long list of sins. It's a gift from God. I deserve to be in the temple in Jerusalem and slaughtered by Pilate's men. It is a gift of God. Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Um, Jesus reminded his audience in Luke 13, they are, were on the verge of the wages of sin. And um, Jesus came to this earth to offer people a gift of eternal water, a life-giving, uh, a new life, eternal life in Christ our Lord. It's an offer and it's a choice for every person. And this is what Jesus said, this is what Jesus meant when he said to repent, to turn to God, to turn and trust Jesus Christ. Third thing I want to remind us about is that God is patient with us right now. It's just like waiting for that fig tree. You're going to wait one more year. God is being very, very patient with us. And we sometimes um, think we deserve it or we're entitled to it. He's being patient with us right now. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. A couple things. He's being patient with you, and he's being patient with me right now. Maybe God wants to use this passage this morning to let you know there are people in your life right now who might be interested in Jesus more than ever if you would connect with them. He is just raising that value of how important life is. And there is more than this physical life. So, what is my response? My response is to repent. To repent means to change one's mind. Jesus claimed to be the only way to God. His death paid for our sin penalty. Uh, he took our place. The wages of sin is death. He stood in for us and took our place. To repent is to turn to him and to rely on him for what he's done as the only way of salvation. To repent is to change one's course of direction. When one places their faith in Christ, they are to follow him. Now, if you knew me back in, I hate to go back, I hate to tell you how old I am, but back in 1974 when I placed my faith in Christ, I was an atheist. And I was going in one direction, and I was self-centered and self-focused, and I was not a very good husband. 
you can ask my wife. But with an encounter with Jesus, things began to change, and I took a new course. I should be walking toward my wife this time. I took a new course toward my family, toward my selfishness. I wanted to follow Christ. I wanted to learn. And my life changed pretty drastically. A new course of direction. It's a, this is when fruitfulness shows up. Character change. To repent is to align one's life under God's authority. Jesus is Lord. I am not the master. Jesus is first. Seek first the kingdom of God. It's to align our lives under his authority. Are we willing to submit to his lordship and to be under his authority and say, I trust that God knows the very best for my life. To repent means to, to align one's daily plans under God's authority. This isn't just a Sunday commitment. This is Monday through Saturday as well. It's a daily walk with Christ, with our families, in our work environments, in our neighborhoods, in public and in private. When you think about it, when Jesus um, was asked about the Galileans, about their violent death in the temple, he did not condemn Pilate. He could have. He did not try to defend God and explain where God was and why did God allow it to happen. He did not blame anyone for the suffering caused by what happened. Jesus saw the eternal perspective. Life is sacred. It is more than the here and now. And there is a tragic end worse than the loss of life for those who don't come to faith in Christ, who don't repent. The call to repent for anyone who has not yet placed their faith in Christ, who has not yet experienced salvation. God desires that you believe what he said about his son. Jesus died on the cross for you. He paid your penalty. It's all paid. It's paid in full. The issue is, do you believe that? There's not a thing you can do. It's not about you it's not about you being a good enough person or anybody being a good enough person. The issue is, will you trust Jesus? Acts 16.31 says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. You know, it, it can be as simple, uh, it, making a decision to put your faith in Christ is going to be as simple as saying a prayer. It could be like something like, and the prayer is not magical, but it's the expression of your heart.